The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Good to see you all. Um, if we haven't met before, I'm Dave. I'm the high school pastor here at TBC, but I also teach up here about once a month or so. It's really good to have you all here this morning. We are continuing our series in the book of 1 John. You can go ahead and turn your Bibles there if you have them with you. And uh, if you've been tracking with us through the book of 1 John, listen, if you're someone who you love outlines that make sense, you will struggle to appreciate how John writes because he often repeats himself over and over again. But that's okay because that's what Jesus did. So John is trying to be Christ-like, and he is uh, repeating himself sometimes in this book. And listen, you know, if, if you're a parent, you know you have to repeat yourself with your kids, Right? You say the same things over and over and over, and sometimes you have to get creative in how you say those things. So we're going to see John do that uh, throughout the book. He gets creative in, in some of the, the, the language he uses, the words that he uses. I've heard, I heard one pastor say that he is like a spiritual father writing to his spiritual children, and his writing is often like a spiral. And it'll sort of go in circles, and it'll come back to the same ideas over and over again, but the spiral, it'll, it'll start to tighten in and, as he circles around, and as he goes into a point, trying to make a point, he'll go deeper and deeper into the idea as he makes that point. So a great theme of the book is how do we know that we're saved? We've discussed that in week one. We've looked at the tests, different tests that John looks at in this book, the test of obedience, the test of love, the test of doctrine and belief, and today we'll expand on the test of love and doctrine today. So look at uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, where it says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death, and everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now John makes what looks like two obvious statements here. He says, love one another and don't be like Cain, who was a murderer. Now, if I could give my kids two rules to live by, it might be these. Love one another and don't murder your sibling. That is a good rule for loving people. Don't murder them. And he refers to the first sibling rivalry, Cain and Abel, back in Genesis. And both men made offerings to God, but God could see into the heart of each man and, and God knew their intents, he knew, he knew their motives, and he knew something was wrong in the heart of Cain. So how do we know that? Well, because Cain responds with murder. It reminds me when Jesus would confront the Pharisees in a very blunt, direct way, and they would get upset and angry at him, and they would huddle up together, and they would say, you know, Jesus says we're evil, what should we do about that? Well, let's kill him. Listen, if someone confronts you and you respond with wanting to commit murder, then they were probably right in whatever it is that they were saying. So Cain's response in Genesis, early part of Genesis, confirms why God rejected his sacrifice. So Cain kills his brother Abel, and 
John refers to that here, and we can hear in John's words an echo of two events in the life of Jesus, and one's in the upper room right before he died, where Jesus tells the disciples in John 13, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. By this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Notice Jesus does not say, they will know you're my disciples by your love for them. Although we should love those that are out there in the world, he says, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for who? For one another in John 13. I love how Francis Schaeffer, the great great apologist, puts it. He said, our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. Christian community is the final defense of the faith. You and I could line up all of our persuasive arguments, but if we lack love, the world's going to look at that and say, listen, your, your argument is undercut because you don't show love to one another. There are times that we see defending our faith as just making this persuasive argument, but there is something that carries more weight, and it's how we treat one another in the body of Christ. Why should the world believe our message that Jesus loves them if we can't love one another in here? The second event to which John refers is the Sermon on the Mount, where the words in First John here sound a lot like the words that Jesus says back in that sermon where Jesus says, if you're angry with your brother, he says, you're a murderer. Now, the command, you shall not murder, is usually the one that people use to say they're a pretty good person. If you do a man on the street interview, you may hear people say things like, listen, I'm a pretty good person. I've never killed anybody. Now, do you really want to compare yourself to such a small segment of the population to to show how good you are? Because you... Do you know how many people actually have murdered someone? It's a very, very small, it's like one in several thousand people. And so Jesus, I think, is saying here, we've got to look deeper. We we can't see murder as just the physical act, but where does murder originate? It originates in the heart. That's what Jesus says in his sermon. It's what I think John is referring to here. We may not have committed murder, but we harbor hatred or bitterness toward brothers and sisters in Christ. We may not kill the person, but we've assassinated someone's character. Or we've, we've killed friendships. There is a trend in our culture right now, and I think it's finding its way into the church. And it's an article I read this week, and it's in a recent uh, magazine, or re- recent edition of the Atlantic Monthly. And the article is titled, That's It, You're Dead to Me. And it's written by Caitlin uh, Tiffany, and she is not a believer that I know of, and this is not, not, of course, a Christian publication. And she talks about how people are ending friendships today at the drop of a hat, just cutting people off. And they're overusing words like toxic or dysfunctional with, with everybody. And they are celebrating cutting people out of their lives. And she says you'll see articles entitled, Seven ways to cut a toxic friend out of your life. Or social media posts that say, if I cut you off, then chances are you handed me the scissors. There's a WebMD article that defines a toxic person like this. Anyone whose behavior adds negativity to your life. I think that's everybody. (laughs) So suddenly everyone is toxic 
except for me, of course. She goes on to quote, this is a long quote, so bear with me on this. She says, why is this happening? Maybe young people have been inspired by the impermanence and infinite choice baked into online dating and social media. Maybe our brains have been pickled in wellness culture and self-care rhetoric, which stress the need to privilege our own well-being above all else. Or maybe we're just good American capitalists encouraged by the cult of individualism to think of ourselves as compelling brands, the main characters of cinematic star vehicles, the centers of the universe. Again, this is not a Christian saying this. Ryder's not even a believer that I know of. But listen, there, there are some truly awful, abusive situations, and there are times to set up boundaries. There are times to end certain friendships, but that's not what she's referring to. She's talking about someone doing one wrong thing, and instead of giving them a chance to make it right, we just, we just cancel them. There's no, there's no grace. There's no forgiveness. There's no chance for repentance. There's no conversation. There's no Matthew 18, go to your brother when they've sinned against you and, 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 and express your, your hurt or, your, or the sin that's been committed against you and give them a chance. There's none of that. You see, what's interesting is that the world claims to be tolerant. The world claims to be loving. The world claims to be forgiving, except for when they're not. And I think that shouldn't be too surprising because if forgiveness is not rooted in the gospel, then the well of forgiveness quickly runs dry. There's no, there's no depth, there's no divine resource for it. And you see, the problem isn't how the world is treating one another. We should, I think, expect that. But the problem is how we are treating one another. And this way of thinking is, is seeping into the, into the church and God's people. It's interesting that John says here, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you might protest and say, I mean, John, I think you're overstating things here. I mean, I've got some issues with some people, but I wouldn't call myself a murderer. But then look at the admission in the statement that our culture says. The statement is, that's it. You're dead to me. You're dead to me because I've killed you. We may not say it, but we, we act it. And this is a spiral of truth that I was talking about that John does, because John's already said that we should love one another. But right here in, in the section today, he drops this bomb about murder, and it, it sort of catches you off guard, and you think, okay, I'm tracking love each other, love each other. And John says, if you don't, you're a murderer. I mean, that hits different, doesn't it? That's convicting. And there's this little phrase in verse 13 where John says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Now, I'm going to apologize to you. I'm going to talk about football for one minute. Now, I promised Tim Cartwright I would not talk about the Philadelphia Eagles. I'm not going to mention that this morning. But this is about Tim Tebow from years ago. You might remember him. An outspoken Christian, a great college player, didn't have a great NFL career, but an outspoken believer, and when he was in college, also the NFL, and he was talking about his faith, sharing his faith, there was a lot of backlash about that in the media, 
and people mocking, scorning, ridiculing him and his faith. And then the storyline became, would, would people treat him differently if he was of a different religion? Would he be getting mocked and ridiculed in public for his faith if he was of a different faith? And there was this one debate show I watched one time on ESPN. I forget what show it was. And that was the question they put to the different people on the show. And everyone had an opinion about this. And then you might know who Stephen A. Smith is. He's a very opinionated guy. And he speaks up and says, very calmly, he says, you know, I don't know why Christians are so surprised when they're persecuted for their faith. Because the Bible tells them this will happen. And that's what this verse is saying. I think it was the most profound statement I ever heard on ESPN. So why are we surprised? We have this strange obsession with the world loving us and our ideas, even before they come to know Jesus. Even before they come to know Christ, we want them to act saved before they are saved. Now listen, there's a lot of, there's a lot of so-called Christians out there who don't even embrace Christian ideas or live by them. So why should the world or why would the world love us and our ideas if many so-called Christians don't even love the ideas of Christianity and live by them? So John says the world is going to hate you from the outside, so don't add to the hate from the inside. You see, the stream of hatred should only flow in one direction. It's going to come from the world to us, but it should not go from us to the world, and it surely should not go from us to one another. Look at verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us, love, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So how do we know love? How do we truly know love? Well, we see it, first example is that we see it in the sacrifice of Jesus. This love is lived out and it leads to action. What if Jesus said he loves us, but he never came in the flesh? What if he said the words? What if he spoke the words, but he never gave his life? What if we say the words, but it never leads to action? You all know, of course, this was Valentine's week, or I hope you know that it was Valentine's week. And, and many of you didn't just say the words, I love you, but you, you probably showed it in some way, or at least you should have. And if not, I hope your couch is comfortable. But John says, he looks back at the story of Cain, and he says, instead of being someone who is selfish and someone who takes life, the life of somebody else, he says, we should be someone who gives life, who lays down our life, just like Jesus. And our life should be characterized by that kind of sacrifice. He says, if you have the resources and you see your brother or sister in need, but you close your heart against them. And it reminds me of Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7, where it says, if among you one of your brothers should become poor, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand 
against your poor brother. Hardened hearts lead to closed hands. And I love the focus here in Deuteronomy of the heart and how that affects us with with our hands and what we give to people because God cares about the heart and sometimes we open up our wallet but our heart remains closed. We may write a check or give money to someone but God cares most about the heart because he knows that an open heart towards someone is gonna lead to more openness and, and being a more giving person in whatever situation we find ourselves in and being more generous in our actions. Several years ago, um, there was a couple. Y'all might remember this. We used to have an 815 service. We hear some amens out there. And I used to sit back there towards the middle, and there was a couple that would sit in front of me every Sunday at that service. And they're both, they've both passed away now. And I got to know them through sitting there behind them every Sunday and just very giving people. And of course, they're both retired and they had lots of free time. So they, uh, one time I'm at, at Churches Touching Lives for Christ, which is a food pantry, a clothing pantry here in, in Temple on the east side of town. And that serves the needs of our community. And I took my high school students there to do a service project one Saturday. And I see this couple there also serving on that same Saturday. And we start talking. And during one of the break times, they pulled me aside and said, we want to ask you a question. They said, we feel called by God to give some money to a young person who's in need for a college scholarship. Can you find us someone in your youth ministry that we can give this money to? And I said, I think I can do that. So I went down my list of students, the seniors, and I found this young man who had plans for college, and, and he didn't know who they were, the, the givers of this, of this money, and we had to find a way to make this transaction without him knowing and his mom knowing who was given the money. And I think of that couple, and here they are giving on a Saturday and thinking of other ways that they can give and wanting to be generous with what, with, with what God has given them. And just a great testimony to how God opened up their heart so that they would open up their hands and give of what God has so generously given to, given to them. So for this couple, love wasn't just an idea. And it wasn't just a feeling. It wasn't just a theory. And I think at times we can love the idea of loving people more than truly loving people. C.S. Lewis writes, it is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. It is easier to say we love in theory than to act out love in practice. And you see, true love is always active. And it's not afraid to get specific. It's not afraid to to zero in on somebody in a situation and to say, I'm going to love this person. I'm going to bless this person in this specific way. Look at verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, 
We have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. When John says, by this, he's referring to this test of love. Is our love displayed through action? And whenever this becomes evident in our lives, it it brings this assurance to our hearts. You know, sometimes we have this confidence and all this assurance about our salvation, but there are times we really struggle with that. Back in week one, we asked the question, how do I know I'm saved? And we talked about how it's possible for a true Christian that even though you're truly a Christian, you're truly saved, it's possible to experience some eroding assurance about our salvation sometimes. And we listed out several different ways that that can happen. Refusal to deal with known sin or spiritual laziness or maybe it's just satanic attacks or suffering and trials or personality and temperament or spiritual dryness, seasons of dryness in our lives. We talked about the need to to preach to our hearts in those times, but there are times when our hearts preach back and our hearts say false things to us. So, So why does our heart do that? Well, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? There are times that our hearts will will lie to us and accuse us falsely. Or we might just realize the truth of the matter and realize, I just don't love people like I should. And, And we just fall short. And we realize that. And it's really hard to to not listen to those voices. But there is another voice that is louder if we'll listen. There's a greater voice that's bigger than the voice of our heart. He says, God is greater than our heart. And if we listen to his voice and what he says about his children, we can approach God with confidence, knowing that his grace and mercy can override our guilt and condemnation. You know, you and I are are really good at beating up on ourselves. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, you might think to yourself, you know what, I know too many Christians who just continually just sense the judgment of God and they just constantly beat up on themselves. And so why would I want to be a part of that? You might think that about the Christian faith. So we're really good at at beating up on ourselves, but you know who doesn't beat up on you? Jesus. Why would he beat up on you? He was beaten for you. He's the one who said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? You'll find rest for your souls. His words should be louder in our lives than the words that come from our hearts. His words are greater than what our heart says. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist 
which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So John's already said a lot about love in this letter, but truthful love is never naive. Truthful love is never gullible. Now we know there are some verses that you're gonna maybe point to and say, you know, there's a verse that says, you know, love, love hopes all things, it believes all things. That's not what that's about. But true love is never naive and real love is grounded in truth and we live at a time when, in which people, some even claim Christ, where people want to define love for themselves. But listen, God gets to define what love is. And because John has a true love for these believers, he says, don't fall for every spirit, but test those spirits. And see if what they're saying truly lines up with who Jesus says he is. In that time people were accepting just any teaching that sounded inspired or sounded supernatural. So John puts the responsibility for being able to discern truth from error, John puts that responsibility squarely on every believer. It's not just for the pastor. It's not just for the scholar. It's not just for the academic. But John says, no, he says to the church there he's writing to, he says, don't believe every spirit. And he's expecting every believer to be able to have that kind of discernment and not be naive and not be gullible and fall to every kind of temptation that might be out there. He gives us a test through which we can discern true and false teaching. And the most important test is what somebody believes about Jesus. If you're sitting with someone and you want to cut to to the chase, ask this question, what do you really believe about Jesus? That's a great question to ask someone. What do you believe about his deity and and his humanity? Who do you think he really is? If somebody believes that he's fully God, fully man, that he came in the flesh, well, John says that's from God. If they don't believe that, it's not from God. Now listen, this does not mean just mere recognition of his identity. Because we know even the demonic spirits in the Gospels recognize the deity of Christ. They would often recognize it before anybody else. And they would say, we know who we're dealing with, and they'd be frightened and terrified. But to confess, that is a a profession of faith in him. To confess is a profession of faith. You know, it's really interesting that, that false cults, some even claim to be under the umbrella of Christianity, that one of their main pillars many times is taking issues with the deity and the humanity of Jesus. And this is what happened in the early church. His, his deity or his humanity was often under attack, and it's still true today. We spend a whole month in Christmas time talking about the importance of the incarnation of Jesus coming in the flesh, fully God, fully man. And that may have grown cold to your ears, but do you realize that one of the first things that Satan attacked in early church history was the deity and the humanity of Christ? And that's still under attack today by many so-called cults that even claim the name of Christianity If there was a playbook for starting a cult, it might look like this. Find your authority, not in the Bible, but in a powerful central leader, and make sure he has a long beard. Attack the church, twist Christian doctrine, undermine scripture, promote salvation by works. 
And if you want to get really creative, make a claim that an angel appeared to you, only you, somewhere out there in the woods, and gave you a special truth that no one's ever heard before. It's really interesting that over in the book of Galatians, Paul, in Galatians 1.8, he, he says this exact statement. He says, but even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel that's contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. You know, there are some cult leaders that will say, you know, an, an angel appeared to me from, from heaven. And we can say, yeah, yeah, Paul warned us that that might happen. And, and, and let me guess, you've got something to say about the deity and the humanity of Jesus. How do we know? Well, it's all right here. We were warned about that. I think back on the, the book of Exodus when the 10 plagues occur and the people are being set free from Egypt. Do you recall what happened, I think, in the first few plagues? Is that Moses or Aaron would, would perform a miracle in front of the Egyptians and, and, the, and the people to be a sign of God's power. Do you recall what happened next? That Pharaoh's men and his magicians would do the exact same thing and repeat it. You and I cannot look at just experience and think we see the supernatural or hear something that just sounds amazing and say, my experience trumps scripture or my experience trumps who God says he is. Because there's no telling in that world of spiritual warfare what we might see and what power or force might be behind it. If it doesn't line up with the words of scripture, then we're right to question it. We're supposed to test everything. Look down at verse four. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So verses one through three, they address these false teachers. But now he's addressing those that are tempted to fall for their false teaching. And he says, you have overcome them, meaning the false teachers. Now, not out of your own strength, but because of what? Because of who is in you, who resides in you. And in verse 6, John says something that sounds a bit arrogant. He says, you know, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Now, if you or I said that, it would sound a little bit arrogant, right? Whoever knows God agrees with Dave. If you don't agree with Dave, well, you're not of God. So why does John get to say that? Well, because he is an apostle, and he had a firsthand witness to the, uh, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, witnessed the crucifixion, witnessed the resurrected Christ. There is an authority that he carries in his witness that you and I cannot claim. So this is not an arrogant statement. He is saying, look, I saw the resurrected Jesus. And so because of that, and because of our collective witness as the saints, there's an authority there 
And we believe that too. We read these words. These are authoritative words written through these men that are, that are the words of God, from God through these men. And we believe that inspiration of Scripture. And these words carry authority. Because how do we know that someone belongs to God? Well, do they submit themselves to the authority of God's word? Do they listen to it? Do they live by it? There's a warning here against falling for anything that sounds spiritual or close to Christianity. John Stott says, we should, abo- we should avoid both extremes. The superstition, which believes everything, and the suspicion, which believes nothing. There are those who refuse to believe anything. They look at everything with suspicion, never putting their faith and trust in who Jesus says he is. And John says, no, we, we've heard him. We, we saw him. We touched him. This is real. You can believe this. And then there are those who believe everything, and, and they fall for everything, ne- never questioning someone's experience, never questioning their own experience, never seeing how it lines up with Scripture. But, but truthful love is discerning. Truthful love is never naive. It's never just gullible. It never just believes anything and everything. Throughout this book, 1 John, we, John seems to, to bounce between this idea of love one another, but then he'll go and talk about doctrine and belief and who Jesus is. And it can seem like we're just going back and forth between these unrelated ideas. So what does the command love one another have to do with Jesus coming in the flesh? And the answer is everything. Because Jesus showed his love by coming in the flesh. And if we don't see him for who he is, then we can't really know him. And if we cannot know him, then we can't truly love him. And if we can't know his love, then how can we love others? Our ability to love flows from the reality that we are loved by God. I know that many of you all may have heard in the past week or so this story, a little story out of Kentucky, this little university called Asbury University. And listen, I don't know much about it, honestly. But there's apparently this sort of revival that's begun breaking out on their campus and the surrounding area. And listen, when I hear that word, I think back to my childhood, because I come from a church background where we, we scheduled revival. Because you can schedule the Holy Spirit like that. And that's not what this is. And I went just yesterday, there's, um, they had this little service at chapel, a regular chapel service, and then somehow there was this, this move of God. And listen, I'm a person that thinks very skeptically and very cynically, much like many of you out there in the crowd. And so I question everything. So I don't know how genuine each individual person is, but I'm inclined to think that there is something happening that is genuine because yesterday I just went and listened to the chapel sermon that the guy gave that has now led to several days of just people repenting and confessing and worshiping. And listen, the chapel message wasn't this rip-roaring message. It wasn't reminiscent of Jonathan Edwards in the first and second great awakening. I mean, the guy preaching had on white New Balance running shoes. 
It was just very simple. The message was very simple. It was maybe 15 to 20 minutes. But when I heard that, I was amazed at some of the tie-ins with this passage in 1 John. And the whole sermon, one of his main ideas was that our ability to love comes from the reality that we are loved. And listen, if revival is ever real or ever going to happen in our hearts or even in our community, revival is about love. It's not just recognizing I broke a rule. It's about loving the Savior more than I love my idols. That's when revival, I think, can begin. And that's how it truly begins. And he preached this whole sermon from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. And I was amazed at all the connections between that passage, the words of Paul, and 1 John. And so this morning, I want to ask you just to stand up with me and just hear these words from Romans 12. And would you just close your eyes for a moment and just let these words be the meditation of your heart. Romans 12, verse 9, where it says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another and do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good.